Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. No, and then we just, now we're now we're recording. Uh, so do all that, that again. That was great fodder. I know. <laughs> I know. That was legitimately awesome fodder, and people missed it. There was some singing. There was some singing. This isn't a there, lie. There really was on both ends. Yeah. God, you so totally missed it. Um, can we? So, the Lone Ranger. Okay. <laughs> All I could think about when I was watching it is Wild West Two. God, <laughs> totally. Did I ruin that for you, or what? You really did. You really did. <laughs> 
Oh, but the yeah. West Wild West too. Wild West too. Where's wild, the giant robot West. spider? <laughs> there, it's totally ruined that for you. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, man. That's horrible. No, should, it's fine. It, it was. Uh, uh, where I, I mean, okay, I watched it on a very small screen, so I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah, bring so it up here. Um, I uh, I don't know what to make of it. I the whole Kimosabi bit has me a little bit taken sideways. You know, it, it. I was asking myself when I heard that Johnny Depp was cast as Tonto, and I'm asking myself again. I'm still asking myself, why not cast one of the great Native American actors that we have in our country? Yeah. Why do we need to have Johnny Depp? Why can't Johnny Depp be a different cowboy somewhere in the film? Why does it have to be Johnny Depp playing Tonto? Yeah. I, it, it's just you know when he when that. <clears throat> There come a time, Kimosabi. I was like, oh, boy. that was a little much. It was a little much. It's true. I uh, I had a hard time with it, and and uh, you know, with the the uh, the the art is it brings a little bit too much of Dark Knight for me. A little bit with the scrawl, twenty thirteen, the whole look, the whole the whole uh, thing. I I wasn't bothered by that so much. I mean. It's been a, a I don't know good you know chunk of time now that films have kind of taken on that real yeah. gritty sort of vibe and I like that vibe I, I I think it's a little I like it better than kind of the candy coated vibe so so um, are you how would you compare this to Pitch Perfect in terms of you in terms of your level of interest uh, well I. I'm probably more likely to see this one in the theater if I see it only because of the spectacle. <laughs> You're going to, are you kidding? You're going to see it. You're going to no, see oh, it. Hey, you know what? I didn't see, I didn't see Battleship. I didn't see, there's, I didn't see John Carter. There are a lot of big spectacle films that I completely dismissed. Cowboys and Aliens. Didn't see that one. I don't feel comfortable being reminded of this. I feel like <laughs> it's, it's putting to it's painting a picture that I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not happy. Oh. hearing this it feels like you it feels like you're i mean there's somebody who did you i mean did you actually fulfill your destiny and run out and see judge dread after the show last week you mean dread um it'll always be judge dread to me <laughs> i did <laughs> i i very much look forward to hearing you say this what did you think of it i really liked it i completely enjoyed it what it was over the top and bloody but i thought it was really fun what i know i wasn't expecting that at all i'm gonna see this movie i'm gonna go see it i don't like you very much but i'm still gonna take your recommendation <laughs> it's it's so over the top and bloody and just i mean it's it's kind of silly but uh it's nowhere silly like in the context of uh stallone's judge dread this one is just i mean it's it's actually simple i guess it's not a very complex story but i actually enjoyed it i found myself really kind of engrossed by it i didn't get to see it in 3d because the timing didn't work out but uh you would know, you do you think i should see if i'm gonna see it i should see it in 3d is that I what could you're saying see, i could see what the 3d would have brought to it but i i personally was fine just seeing the 2d so. <laughs> <laughs> wow I know. I'm I'm thrilled to hear you say that. And I think it's because I was more bullish on just that movie existing than you were in yeah. the first place. I think I was more excited because I remembered um 
I don't know. I, how would you how would you compare Dread to Judge Dread in the context of uh uh y- you know the Mars one? Guado. What's it called? We just saw Total it. Recall. Total Recall. Which I I still haven't seen the remake of that. I know, so. but just to, in terms of just sort of your emotional reality of that movie of those movies. Well, okay. Judge Dread I went into Judge Dredd and Total Recall both completely with no, well, I shouldn't say that, with no context going into Judge Dredd because I never read the comics. I didn't know anything about it. I walked out of the movie going, that was the silliest hunk of garbage. It was so comical. And I mean, it was based on a, a comic. So maybe they were going for that comedic style. But for somebody who's like, you know, the judge, judge, jury, and executioner, as I thing because i watch hot fuzz too much judge judy and executioner uh <laughs> it's just like killing everybody and then to throw rob schneider in as the sidekick and it just it was just so silly and you know i just didn't like it at all and then and so i, I had no expectations going into this one because i hated that first one so much i didn't want to see this one but a couple of friends kept pressing me to and so i finally did and i loved it um total recall the first film i actually had read the novel adaptation before so i knew the story i was excited about it i saw the movie and i loved it so you know it, it's almost a flip reaction it, it, because i loved the first one so much i really was hesitant to see this remake because i was kind of afraid it would taint what i taint my memories of that original one okay okay um I, I think I talked a lot about Total Recall. I was very disappointed at the new one. I very much liked the first one, but I think I like it in hindsight more than I like it liked it at the time. Uh, I I liked Judge Dread. It's another one that I remember fondly, so I'm seeing a lot of parallels here. So it's the Dread itself has made me nervous. But I really like uh, I really like Doctor uh, uh, McCoy. What's his name? Yeah, he's great. Carl. Uh, yeah, I really like him. Uh, and so he plays it well. I mean, <laughs> he does. He does a great job of that. He, I, I just you got to own it. If you're that guy <laughs> and you're coming off of Star Trek, you've got to go all in. I was just wondering, you know, how if you look a certain way for too long, you're not you're, your face kind of locks or the whole old wives tale, how your face will lock in that position or whatever. Yeah. He has such a sneer on his face through the whole movie. I'm like, God, I, how long did it take him to be able to smile again after that film? <laughs> oh. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited about that then. I'm going to, I am going to go see that. Maybe I'll try and sneak away this weekend and catch it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right. it's a fun one. It's um, a bloody, bloody fun one. <laughs> uh, all so much the better, right? Yeah, so much. There the you better. go. All right. Uh, so there was a, there was another trailer uh, which was, um, okay, the symphonic, I would like to say, this is symphonic teaser <laughs> of uh, Die Hard 5. Uh, yeah. It's a, a good day to die, good day to die hard. Good day to die hard. <laughs> What's, uh, and your uh, your initial reaction of this? You know, I, I've enjoyed all of the Die Hard films to, to some level or another, they all have their own charm in in their own way. Um, I'm <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm kind of I, I'm very I know I'll see this one. I'm curious about what they're actually going to do with it because there's not a whole lot in the teaser. Um, but it just it it looks it doesn't look like it compares to any of. I I don't know. I'm curious to see what they do with it. It's in Moscow. 
you know, there's a hot uh, Russian babe in it. He's with his son this time, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see. There was a there was some kind of weird trailer that was released in like April 2013 that you can find, or 2012 that you can find on YouTube, and it is all about his son, and it's it's not just his son, but Hans Gruber's son. And I saw that also. I watched on my phone, so I couldn't quite tell what was going on there because this is the as far as I know. This is the first official trailer, and I, it felt like it was just being cut together from old, old footage or something with a, hmm. like a fan trailer or something. But uh, it was very strange. It looked terrible. It looked terrible. Yeah. Like, uh, like, uh, but you know, uh, what? Uh, and then, then you told me said that this was this trailer. His teaser had come out today, and that I should check it out. Uh, and. So I really liked it. I found myself having the same reaction that I've had with all of the Die Hard movies, except for the first one, obviously, which yeah. was, uh, right? That Stan, stands high above all the others. Well, yeah, yeah. And so as soon as the second, the second one I liked, um, you know, I ended up liking more than I liked the trailer because, uh, you know, and I, I have a hard time separating the fact that it was shot at, uh, much of it was shot at our, our local airport. Old airport. Yeah. And uh, old, uh, what was that? Stapleton. Stapleton, yeah. Stapleton Airport. And so it was It was all that sort of, I totally was where that guy got shot. And I used that phone that he was using by the bathrooms. <laughs> and uh, and so there was a lot of that. And uh, But, you know, in general, I like the airplane one. I did. I, uh, the third one was the Samuel L. Jackson one, right? Yeah, and uh, Jeremy Irons. And Jeremy Irons. I, again, I really liked that one. I didn't think I was gonna. I really did. It was totally different. It was, they shook up the whole concept of, of, uh, uh, of the race, and, and I very much liked it. Which is another good example of taking a script that's completely not written at. That was the script called, I believe, uh, Simon Says. Yes. And turning it into a sequel. Much like I, I kind of talked about in our last episode or a couple of episodes ago, uh, Saw 2, and why I felt that one actually worked pretty well because it was a different script that then they kind of turned around a little bit to shoehorn into the Saw series, which actually I felt worked pretty well. And so, um, yeah, so that surprised by that third Die Hard movie because I wasn't expecting anything. Yeah, I, that that uh, you're absolutely right. And then the fourth one with um, uh, you know was Bruce Willis and uh, the Mac. Um, you know, my, I'm yeah. just, uh, it's, it's late and that's my Justin, point. Justin Long. And, uh, and so, and I, again, I found myself really liking that one. And so the experience is exactly the same. I see the trailer. I don't like the trailer. I'm exhausted by the whole concept of doing another Die Hard movie. I see the Die Hard movie and they do, they always manage to do something that's, cre that's clever enough that, that keeps me interested. And, and it's tough not to, to dig Bruce Willis. I really, uh, he's one of those guys, uh, that I just like watching on screen. And, you know, I even, uh, uh liked him in that Matthew Perry mafia movie. I thought that was funny. <laughs> well, and he's one of those great actors who they can throw into any sort of action adventure sort of movie. And, and just the fact that he's in there, yeah. somehow his, his career makes it better. Like yeah. when he had the, the, um, the antagonist role in, uh, planet terror which you know yeah. i wasn't expecting at all and it was just so much the better for it <laughs> totally so. totally it, it is he is uh he, he's very talented he brings a lot of that charisma to to everything he does um and uh, so i'm very excited about uh, about this movie on spec <laughs> sort of my <laughs> it's a spec emotion yeah that's right uh so um so did we we had a did we cover our correction about mama last week and how frustrated we were about mama and guillermo del toro 
Mama. 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 The Forrest Gump horror sequel. Did we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I have that in my list of things to talk about that we totally skipped. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think we should do that because I think this is a this is a point that is annoying. <laughs> when it's the it's the it's the so and so presents dilemma that we're encountering these days. Yes. And so we said that this the movie Mama was a Guillermo del Toro film, and it mm. is not. He just no. put his name on it. Right. He's just presenting it, much like Quentin Tarantino is presenting films and other people are presenting these films uh, because their name attached to a movie is somehow is carrying enough weight to draw an audience. And so I don't know what sort of money people pay to uh, to get someone's name attached to a film just to kind of boost its ratings. Well, but yeah, yeah, because Andres it's technically... Muschietti it, it's technically, it, if you look at IMDb, it's technically an executive producer role, right? Yeah. So I, I don't understand when this whole presents thing happened or... I remember seeing when... Because um, the first time I got confused about it was Delicatessen, which was directed by um, Junet and Caro, the two French directors. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was listed as Terry Gilliam Presents. And as a big Terry Gilliam fan, I saw that and immediately went to it thinking it was a Terry Gilliam film. And much to my surprise, it wasn't. But I completely enjoyed the film because it did kind of ring of terry gilliam's sensibilities so, yeah no i absolutely no that's yeah. that's a that is a great example and and for some reason you bring up uh 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 oh see you just brought him up the other guy that does all the violent stuff quentin who does tarantino. present quentin tarantino he does that presents thing all the time and for some reason it makes sense when he does it it's sometimes yeah i mean because it seems like films that he likes really into like these crazy Asian films or these kind of schlocky grindhouse sorts of yeah. films or whatever they are. So it's almost like, you know, as a film fan, it's it's like this find that he's found something crazy and wild about it and he wants you to see it. And that's how I kind of feel when I see Quentin Tarantino presents on a film. I don't know if I've ever actually used that to actually go see it, but <laughs> I do right. see it quite a bit. Well, it, for some reason, it it makes uh, it it just feels like he's he. Uh, I think just his personality is out there as he is as sort of a public face as he has. Uh, you know, he he kind of gets away that sort of vaudeville showman characteristic, and and I think that's that's what I end up seeing when I see particularly the grindhouse stuff. You know, when I see he's Quentin Tarantino presents it it it's uh, it's almost a Hitchcock presents kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, exactly. That's a good example. So. Okay, so that was a correction. I'm checking that off my list. Look at me. I'm checking. This is a, there's a little, even a box. I'm literally checking a box. All right. Uh, I have a form and the box is checked. All right. Uh, so shall we talk about October? Are we going to talk about October? Or did we want to have our, our quick wrap up convo on, on Zanuck? Oh, yeah, we should do that. Yeah. We should totally do that. All right. Uh, so, yeah, we spent the last uh, seven shows talking about, uh, the uh, our selections of the movies of Richard Zanuck, uh, and and it was the first time we we tried to kind of tackle films of a particular producer, and as we were wrapping up last week, we had a long show last week, and uh, we just kind of got to thinking at the end of the show that we hadn't had any real sort of um, 
sort of a, a closeout of, of kind of what we learned after watching all these Zanuck films. Is there anything that we could possibly learn or pull together from watching these movies of a given producer? And, and was he, I, I guess the question is, was he a, uh, um, uh, you know, was he a good candidate for this kind of a discussion? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, what what did you uh, did what did you pull out, if anything, of of Zanuck and and uh, and what he brings to cinema? Well, it, it, that's a really good question. I mean, as we have before, this is a guy who who grew up in under the Hollywood umbrella with his his father running Fox. Oh, he was you know having birthday parties with elephants and Shirley Temple. I mean, you know, he kind of had that crazy child in Hollywood dream life as a kid and then when he was in college he just started working in film and never stopped and he really was so tapped into the business of it and what it took to make projects and everything and his business sense as to making these films was was honed at an early age even though he at an early age he also had some major uh, flops, which, you know, he did have to grow and learn from, but he did grow and he did learn. And he was always one of those people who was, was trying to find good stories and good people to work with. And I think that's the big thing to take away from, uh, Richard Zanuck as a producer is this role is somebody who, while they're, they may not be kind of calling all the creative shots on a film, they're the one who still is a creative force creating an environment where everybody else can kind of create this picture and make it work. And Zanuck had actually said, a producer, if he's doing his job, is the creative force. He doesn't tell the director how to direct, but he hires the director. He hires the writer. He's picked the story. He's kind of the grandmaster of it all. I think I said that earlier on in in this series. And I, I find that he's a man who was always pushing to find good stories, Sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't, but it's, it's anyone who knows the film business knows how hard it is. I mean, he made the Island in 1980. That was a flop. MacArthur was a flop. Neighbors was a flop. You know, he had a lot of flops. He also had a lot of successes. Um, but he was somebody who was not afraid to try new talent. You know, Steven Spielberg bringing that, bringing him on to do Sugarland Express. And he was not afraid to to fight the system and do what it took to get projects made. And when you're working in this business and you're working with as much money as these people are spending to make a film, you have to be somebody to fight for it. He and his wife, Lily, believed so much in Driving Miss Daisy that you know they did it on such a low budget. They found all the ways to cut corners. They were making all the deals that a producer of his stature normally wouldn't be making, but because they believed in the project and because they knew there was a life for this film outside of uh, just the play that Alfred Urey had written, they pushed and they made it happen. And and so I, th- I think that's the big thing to take away from this. And while the stories may not all be like lining up similarly like him finding, tapping into producing stories about such and such type of thing or, you know, uh, father and son sorts of stories like, you know, some directors may do, but his stories really ring true. And I think that's what makes him an effective producer. I think that is a, uh, you know, I think that's a, as, as good a summation as any, you know, I was, I was working really hard 
to try to make that point, that there was some sort of a broader point that we should get from his, um, you know, some sort of a thread, a dramatic thread that we should be able to pull from his stories, from Compulsion through The Sting and Jaws and Driving Miss Daisy and Rush and Big Fish and, and Sweeney Todd. And and I, I feel like, um, you know, I, I it, it would be uh, tough to to tie all those movies together directly. But what I think I, I could say is that he uh, this this man was truly gifted as a producer in um, in recognizing the stories uh, that would resonate with the audience of their time. Yeah. You know, when when you look back, I mean, I, I look back in context of uh, or, or sort of tried to contextualize the sting versus rush, for example. Right. Right. I mean, uh-huh. uh, you know, Rush happened uh, happened to, at a time where, you know, there was uh, uh, there was a, you know, it was sort of the onset of the drug war. You know, I mean, it was we were, you know, we were growing up and and uh, this was this was kind of the story of our day was, you know, it was it was drugs and cartels. And that's what we heard about on the news and politicians were all focused on it. And and uh, we knew that there were struggles and, and we since then it's sort of become part of our cultural gestalt but then it was it was uh it it, it was kind of reactionary and rush really taps into uh to that story uh, you know uh, i i just feel like he had a he had a, a terrific uh eye for for pairing great stories with with their contemporary audiences um yeah and that's very th- true and i think that may be why he and tim burton latched onto each other uh, because I think Tim Burton directs that way. I think he can tap into the audience zeitgeist of the time, you could almost say, and is is really uh, making films for the time, as we've kind of talked about how some of the, the Tim Burton films from the 80s just now feel a little dated and stuff like that. But at the time, they were the you know, the great films that that we remembered. And I, and I think that uh, Zanuck, I think you're right, he, he really tapped into that as well and enjoyed finding ways to pair everything about what film was doing at any given time, whether it's the or, or new storytelling methods or whatever, and finding the right people to tap into that and make these films that really did tap into the culture at that moment. Yeah, they're very much the the sort of maestro of, of popular culture at the time. And, and it, you know, he there are so many... I think producers and directors that you you say, uh, gosh, he's he is ahead of his time. He is, uh, you know, he was he was just a few years too late. Uh, uh, and and I think you can you could say that about some Charlie Kaufman films. You could say that about uh, you know Jason Reitman to some extent. Uh, you know these directors who are who are just a little too smart for the audience of today. But two years later, suddenly we get it. Uh, exactly. You know, and I think uh, what. Uh, Zanuck did was tap into, you know, what audiences needed to see right then when he was at his very best. Mm-hmm. So, and some of them, I mean, he t- he found the stories that tapped into that, but he also was able to to um, to tell if a story. I mean, a, a good story is a good story, and and I don't know if he could tell which one was going to be, you know, a, a success that would last generations, like Jaws or The Sting, or if it was going to be just a success of the moment. Um, but regardless, he, he did find ways to tap into that. Absolutely. Well, you know, it was a good, this was, I think this was the longest series that we've done so far, right? Is that right? Uh, minus, uh, David Oh, David Fincher. Fincher. Yeah, no, was, he beats If it. you count Alien 3, which technically we put into our Alien series, it, I mean, David Fincher would be nine. I think we have to count that. 
Yeah, we do. Yeah. Uh, so it, this was a long uh, stretch of a of you know with a sort of a loose association of of films by going by producer, but I think it was a good exercise. I certainly enjoyed uh, enjoyed watching these movies. It was like a trip through time, uh, and uh, and it was fun to start seeing some of these patterns come out. And it was interesting to tap into a person like Zanuck who had been tied into Hollywood for so long and really start. I mean, it's. It, when you're a producer, unless you're like, you know, somebody like, uh, um, I'm trying to think of a big producer right now, um, like, you know, Steven Spielberg when he's not directing or, or Jerry Bruckheimer or something and somebody who like that, who, who makes these big things, but there's not as much written up about them because they're not usually the story. It's usually the actors, the directors, those sorts of people. So it's a lot harder finding um, information written up about Zanuck, but watching the films and just reading the bits and bites that we got as we processed these films, it actually was really interesting trying like forming this picture of who this man was. And I, I found it really just an absolutely fascinating series. I'm really glad that we did this. I have not started the book, uh, that you recommended yet. The studio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I have it. I definitely, I absolutely have it. It's, uh, available to, as a, a downloadable, which is fantastic. So, yeah. um, Okay, October. October. Ooh. I know. I know. I'm, I'm scared just thinking about it. <laughs> All right, Andy. So we decided to uh, to spend the month of October talking about our favorite horror films. Yes. Yes. And so we each brought two. That's right. Because we only have four weeks in October, so we're doing the two. We 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 bring we each bring our two our two favorite. For for some reason or another, we have these favorites. Mm-hmm. And the first week, we're starting with one of yours. That's right. The terrific 1982 John Carpenter's The Thing. This movie, I accidentally saw <laughs> at a, at a young age. I it was probably just when it first came out on cable. I was traveling with my father on, I don't, I don't remember if it was a business trip or if we were seeing friends or something, but we were staying in a hotel and he was sleeping in one bed. I was in the other. He was up watching TV and he assumed I was sleeping and this on Cinemax or HBO or one of those channels. And I was, I had my head cocked to the side with my head on the pillow. So he couldn't see my eyes. And I watched this film and I don't think I slept (laughs) that night at all. I was so horrified. Wait, tell me again. How old were you again? I, it w- I would have been like nine. Okay. I, I'm not sure when. Right. Nine, ten, somewhere around then. Yeah. And I just remember, uh, I mean, the things that stuck in my mind were the, um, the first one, the dog, when the dog thing transforms and attacks all the other dogs and escapes through the ceiling. That was my first experience seeing anything like that. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Robotine. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's Stan Winston. And then, um, and then the other big one. I mean, there's a lot of other horrifying things between that and the next big one that really got me is when uh, the doctor is performing uh, or using the electric paddles to try to um, <laughs> wake the guy up, and the chest <laughs> opens the up as a big mouth, and his hands go in, and he bites his hands off. Oh my goodness. That is the best part. That is the highlight of that movie for me. Absolutely yeah. the highlight of the movie for me. It is. It truly is. It's one of the most visually um exciting 
horror scenes that I think I've ever seen. It and is. I don't it's, think it's one of those. That, I mean, no, you just you, it's something that's so unexpected. Yeah. It, no. It's it is so unexpected. It's like. Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting inversion of the chest, uh, you know, popper from Alien. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it isn't <laughs> like, OK, I'm John Carpenter. How can I do something with a chest that is a little bit different? <laughs> and, and he totally crushes it. That mouth was just fantastic. It looks like a giant Muppet, the giant <laughs> horrifying Muppet mouth in this chest. That uh, certainly but, wasn't going through my mind when I was nine. Well, here's oh, the look thing, at the though. cute little Muppet. Ah! Here's the thing about this movie. What is it about this movie that, that has it? Is it, it, it when when we decide to do this thing, we're going to talk about these horror movies. What was it about the thing that actually uh, had you uh, say, oh, I, that's got to be on my list of, of top favorites because it was not a, a critical hit. It was not a yeah. box office hit. Didn't make a whole right. lot of money. People didn't give it much credit. And I think it's a it's a, a part of the John Carpenter kind of cult fave thing. But um but I, you know, why is, is it just because it had that impact on you when you were nine, or is there something uh, is there something more to it that that really hits home? I, I, there's definitely more to it. I mean, there's there's a lot to be said as to why it's in my probably top five favorite horror movies. In fact, it may be my favorite horror movie because I saw it at a young age and because of the impact that it had on me and my memories of it and just everything about it that was just so terrifying and how well it worked. But I think it's also just this notion of of trust and not knowing, you know, the the danger that somebody else could be carrying and the whole concept. I mean, you can you can put a lot of things into it. They they didn't really have these thoughts in their heads. But I mean, you could look at it in the context of, you know, diseases or or just lies or anything. I mean, there's so many things you could look at the story as kind of a, you know, a telling of a story, something like this. But um, it, but that that whole notion of you don't know who to trust. You don't know if the person next to you is is really the person next to you and is going to be by your side, or if the person next to you is is really now. I guess you could say a traitor. I mean, you could put it in the context of communism, and there's all sorts of ways you could look at this story. I mean, it's very interesting. This is the sort of film that easily could have been made, you know, back uh, during the. Uh, um, the the communist era and the the McCarthy era and 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 could have been some subversive sort of film that was looked at as just a monster movie. But when you look at it years later, you see how they're they're really using it just much much like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, how you're it, you're using it to contextualize the 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 times and you're mm-hmm. it's it's becoming a societal story. And I know that they weren't really doing that when they were making this film, but it's nice. It's nice to see a film like that that actually does make you think and, and it puts those sorts of thoughts in your head. I, I really love it. I think you're I, I think you're right. And I think maybe that's the gift of hindsight of this movie. And it's something that that shows it, it's a different side of the movies of this era. Right. Because what what really dominated this era more than anything else, I think, was, uh, you know, kind of the slasher film that was kind of, you know, invented in the early 70s, uh, you know, or not invented, but popularized in the early 70s. And we have this kind of cabal of of filmmakers in, you know, John Carpenter and Sean Cunningham with Friday the 13th and Wes Craven, who, you know, the legendary Nightmare on Elm Street and others. Uh, and, and I think that... Um, uh, and and Toby Hooper uh, with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I I think what the thing does is it 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 gives us uh, you know a, 
strangely, for as unpopular it was, as it was, gives us a little bit more uh, substance to end up talking about later uh, than than these other movies that ended up having, I, I think, a lot more um, sort of cult fave uh, credibility in later yeah. years. Yeah. And, and John Carpenter would do that sometimes. I mean, sometimes he would be taking things um, to a certain, um, you know, critical of society sort of level, like they live, things like that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he would just be making movies for fun. He kind of went both ways. This one works better. And you're right, being able to look back on it and and take something else out of it, I think, does give it a little bit of an interesting twist. And yeah, you, you know, it's funny because we we end up with the um, uh, the we've already talked and and I actually think this would have obviously for me at least it would have shifted my choices had we not already done Jaws and Alien, um, because those you know of the of the time those movies were you know held had a huge impact, but I think the thing sort of holds its own in in uh, kind of watching this movie with it and and. Um, uh, holds its own against those those films in in uh, sort of substance and structure and and just the general kind of spookiness of the relationships. As you say, I think one of the things that that really makes this movie stand out is that it is it's uh, uh, the Lord of the Flies aspect of it. Uh, yeah, you know, it's that entrapment piece of being alone in Antarctica and yeah. and you know, I don't know, I I. I watched it again and I thought, gosh, this is, this is a really sad story. It's a sad story because, <laughs> it is. you know, we, here we have, uh, this poor alien who <laughs> has been, it's the story of this poor lonely alien who is just trying to build a ship and get home, but at every corner is stopped by these horrible, evil humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you say that because actually, uh, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter talked about that, that saying, how if they, I mean, look, put it in context of us landing on another planet. If we are on another planet and we start eating some plants to survive, but all of these plants are actually sentient, yeah. they're going to be freaking out and trying to figure out how they can stop us from attacking and eating them. I know. And, and that, it's, it's the same thing here. It's, it's the, uh, I kept thinking about the Saturday Night Live skit, you know, the land shark, you know. I'm just a friendly dolphin, ma'am. <laughs> you know, that poor dog is like, I'm just a dog. Just let me go. I'm going to just piss on a tree and then I'm going to go home. Please? Why are you shooting at me? <laughs> so the movie itself is, uh, you know, it, it, so far as we've we've started talking about it, it's, uh, it is the story of uh, E.T. with no friendly Elliot. E.T. E. and 12 Angry Men. <laughs> That's what it is. It is. It literally is. It is. Angry men. It is. <laughs> angry men. And uh, and it is the story of the discovery of this alien creature that uh, that it, it has been uh, unfrozen by um, by some Nor- Norwegians, uh, the Norse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, think it's his Norge on it. <laughs> and uh it it starts uh it, it starts when the the uh, you know the the uh early discoverers are chasing it in a helicopter and they're trying to shoot this dog and so we see this dog the dog does not look to me like a wild uh like a wild uh wolf dog it looks to be one of the sweetest most awesome dogs uh <laughs> until even though it really is half wolf yeah i mean until its face splits open <laughs> And it starts like spraying stuff all yeah. over the other dogs and wrapping its <laughs> tentacles around them and 
right. absorbing, absorbing their essence. Them. Uh, so the the dog thing doesn't make it. it, it the, the the setting is uh, we are in a lonely outpost in Antarctica. Uh, this would have been a very different film uh, set in um, you know the inner city. Uh, this is uh and and so we we open with that sort of sense of of kind of just loneliness and desperation even before the action starts yeah i think they do it i think one of the things that carpenter does really well is set up this this uh that that just barren sense of nothingness uh that Mm -hmm. is out there Uh, among these guys who you never quite get a sense that they actually like each other <laughs> uh, it, you know, how well, for whatever reason they're there, you know, and we're never really given any sort of setup about why they're there. Well, it's uh, like a scientific expedition sort of. But we don't station, see. But we just don't know what they're doing. Right. right. We don't know what they're doing. We don't see any science. There's a lot of of uh, kind of lounging about, and sometimes they clean things. <laughs> uh, but we don't we don't really have a, a sense of what they're doing, and we know that our our hero McCready is a pilot. Right. Uh, played by the wonderful uh, Kurt Russell. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, so where are we so far in, in the things that you love about this movie? Let's talk about Kurt Russell. I mean, I grew up watching some of Kurt Russell's other films, like the the what were they like the computer or tennis shoes and and um, Escape those, from the New York Disney the snake, films he made Plissken. as a young kid. Oh yeah, I know, as and, a young kid, yeah. And I mean, I just, I loved those movies. I thought they were so great. And I don't think I um, ever connected the two <laughs> that it was the same man. And maybe it was just because of the beard until like later in life when I was like, oh my goodness, that's, that's Dexter on <laughs> the computer wore tennis shoes. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's funny how, how uh, these Disney kids can grow up. And then all of a sudden it's like, that person is no longer a kid. I mean, much like somebody like, uh, you know, who we um, talked about before, um, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, mm-hmm. and how he grew up as kind of a kid actor. And, and it's that awkward transition into, into other films. And, and uh, Kurt Russell, you know, did manage to transition. I mean, he was a very, very busy guy. In fact, I think he had been in the business, I think, like 20 years already by the time he did uh, um, the thing. Right. So, I mean, this is a man who's had a very long career, a very, very long career. And, um, this film came along and, and, you know, he had already done escape from New York just before it with, uh, John Carpenter and they kind of connected. And so John Carpenter was, was going to be doing this other one. And he asked him if he wanted to be on board and, you know, boy, I tell you when Kurt Russell is, is right for a role, just like we were talking about with Bruce Willis earlier, there's, I don't know what it is about that man, but he just brings something to a film that just makes it better for me. I, he is, uh, you know, he's to me, he's there with Bruce Willis. Yeah. He's that, that sort of caliber of action, kind of dramatic action hero. Uh, mm. he is, he is to me, um, you know, the model of, uh, kind of right or wrong, the model of masculinity, like of what a man is. That's what I grew up. He was the guy who was the hero. And, yeah. um, and, uh, so it, you know, to me it was, you know, when he sort of takes over and, and is, is tested as a leader and starts, you know, cooking the blood at the end, it's like, uh, you know, that's, 
that's that's protecting machismo, not just his role and his stake at U.S. Outpost 31. It's protecting, you know, manhood for all of us who were, you know, <laughs> uh, you know 10 when this movie came out. Right, uh, right. So uh, I I quite liked it. Now, uh, so, uh, you know, how, how do you, this is your film, how do you want to talk about it from here on out? I've got, I've got some other things I want to talk about, but. Well, you know, I just want to, let's, let's go through the cast. Yeah. Because I think. I mean, you had said it already. It's it's a really interesting dynamic with this cast. I mean, it is twelve men at this outpost, uh, not counting like the Norwegians who are are flying around. But you've got these twelve men stationed at this place, and they all have to you know figure out how to deal with this alien creature. They're cut off from the world. You know, there's a big storm rolling in. What it, you know, it's kind of that typical horror setup. They they've lost radio communication, so basically they're on their own. It's just the 12 of them and they, you know, whatever, you know, friendships or differences, they have to work it out to figure out how they can get through this and survive. And as they learn and as you see them kind of testing each other and partnering up or whatever it is that they're doing all the way through, you're finding that um, these guys are, are, are realizing the horrible place that they've been put in because this this thing essentially takes you over to such a perfect you know level that nobody can tell that it's whether it's you or the thing that if they don't all die essentially by the end of this uh this you know situation that they're in this thing could get out and i I can't remember what how many hours before it would take over the entire world but it was it was you know something in the thousands of hours and and all humanity is gone Right. And and so you've got these wonderful 12 actors and I'll just rattle them off since there are only 12. We've got Kurt Russell as R.J. McCready, Wilford Brimley as Dr. Blair, T.K. Carter as Knowles, David Clennon as Palmer, Keith David as Childs, Richard Dysart as Dr. Copper, Charles Hallahan as, as Norris, Peter Maloney as George Bennings, Richard Masur as Clark, Donald Moffat as Gary and Joel, Joel Polis as Fuchs and Tom Thomas Waits as Windows. So those 12 guys are who we're following all through this film and just everything about their relationships. And, and even though you don't know what they're doing, they all have a role and you really get a sense that they have been working here for a while and they know what they're up to. And you get a sense that Clark is kind of the loner who mostly just kind of hangs out with the dogs and, and Copper and Blair are kind of the more serious ones who, who analyze things. And, and Copper obviously as the doctor is the one who kind of handles all those sorts of things. And, and you start getting these relationships and, and really getting a sense of who these people are. And, you know, it's the, the cast dynamic, it, it, it just works so well in the story. We, I, I just want to say, uh, as a little addendum, mm. there is uh, one female part in this film. <laughs> yeah, right, a cameo, a, a brief cameo, cameo. by as uh, by Adrian Barbeau playing the voice of the chess computer. That's right. And we should look out for her because she is in Argo. Coming, is up she really? I didn't know that. And so I was. I'm look at they look at me trying to close the loop. That's fantastic. I just closed a loop and somebody better die. <laughs> okay. Uh-oh. Uh so I uh, I'm absolutely with you on the cast and in particular there were some that stood out for me uh at Donald Moffat. Uh, mm-hmm. 
that guy always surprises me. And and it may be because I get him confused with, um, oh, what's his name? The farmer from Babe, Pig in the City? Or <laughs> Babe the Pig? <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, with, uh, oh, now. What's now his blanking. name? Uh, it's um, James Cromwell. James Cromwell. I always get him. And, and it was, and, it was and, to you the know, point I where. I kind of get him confused with George Gaines from oh. Bunky Brewster. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> I think yours might be worse. No, uh, Donald Moffat, I, it, it's, um, boy, it's a funny thing about that guy. He's been in a lot of stuff, but mostly uh, the one that keeps coming back to me was uh, Clear and Present Danger. Ah, that's the same thing for me. These drug cartels are a clear and present danger to the security of the United States of America. <laughs> How dare you come in here? How dare like you, sir? <laughs> oh that was so great he was great in that movie so that that surprised me that he was in here and uh i had totally forgotten that uh as you say richard dysart uh i think was uh was another just it totally surprised me that this guy was in here in fact most of them uh you, this movie is just seeing a bunch of old guys as young guys and that uh, i think was <laughs> uh, was really really great um the Richard Dysart, he's one of my favorites. And, you know, he's between this and being there. I mean, he's just been, you know, such great films. And I actually have a, 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 a perfect role for him if I can ever get him out of retirement. But he's retired. <laughs> Dad gum. He is retired. He's, uh, yeah, he's, he's retired. It's, it is very sad. Uh, he, he was, um, you know, obviously the, uh, I, um, you know, I watched him every week as Leland uh, on right. L.A. Law, and that's uh, that's kind of where I felt like I got to know uh, Richard Dysart. It was he's a a great character, um, but the the one really that that stands out for me more than any other is uh, Wilfred Brimley. Oh yeah, I mean seriously, that man just just talking like forces me to pay attention. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it was because um, it was the TV show Our House that he was on. Uh, when I was when we were kids, I don't know if you remember watching that show, but boy, he was like the grandpa in that show, and he taught that kid some serious lessons. And I think I learned all those <laughs> lessons because I was terrified of the man. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's like that grandfatherly presence that you just you listen to because because he doesn't take any guff. Yeah, yeah, and because he looks like the guy on uh, he looks like the uh, oatmeal guy. <laughs> And so I, I look at him and I think, God, I'm weirdly hungry. <laughs> uh, he... there, you know, there's nothing better than seeing Wilfred Brimley, the grandfather in our house, drive his fingers into somebody's face and absorb his essence. <laughs> that was so great. Got him by the skin of his face there, just dragging him around by his bones. Yep. That was that was good. When he freaks out and starts destroying everything and saying, nobody's going home. Yeah. Uh that was one of the most terrific scenes. And and I think it's uh I think that is a great example of of going um sort of uh, counter construct right there this is a guy who even then uh was you know it, it was so wildly out of character to see him uh in this kind of a role um mm -hmm. and uh, to see him kind of lose it like that and yet he does it really well i mean he just he ends up sort of going off the deep end in, in such a great way and and uh, the way he he plays his recovery mm -hmm. uh is I mean, it's it's just um, at the very top. Uh, yeah. It it is 
you know, I'm really tired of being out here, <laughs> <Yeah>. greedy. <laughs> I would really like to come inside. Uh, it's just a terrific moment. With with the noose hanging next With the to noose it. hanging. So I'm telling you, I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, and it was only a couple of years later that he, uh, you know, that he had, uh, uh, well, it w- that was, I think, um, you know, he had been doing, he, he had been acting, I think, for nearly, what, 15 years? Um, Quite a while. His first film was in 1968, uh, and so then this was 1982. But after that, uh, you know, his real peak was was in the mid '80s, uh, where you know he's he, 1984. He had two, three, four, five, six, seven films mm-hmm. uh, uh, leading up to 1985, Cocoon, and of course uh, Richard D. Zanuck's Cocoon. Yeah, Richard D. Zanuck's Cocoon, and I think the one you and I really liked the most, which was Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. <laughs> Why did I have a feeling you were going to bring that one up? <laughs> so I, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it was a that w- for that character who, uh, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> Brimley totally did it. Uh, I, I think it's, um, uh, it was a a terrific cast uh, to to get that guy to to uh, to play that part. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was good. He was good. I, and, I mean, like you're saying, I mean, everyone in this is just stellar and they, they work together so well. They work against each other so well. All the, and, uh, you know, just the way that Richard Masur plays that, that kind of quiet loner who wants to kind of hang out more with the dogs, which, you know, I, I love seeing him. I, he, he's one of those guys. I just remember from a couple of things as a kid, like Mr. Boogity. And um, it, the Stephen King's it mm-hmm, uh, TV mm-hmm. uh, miniseries, and uh, but his his kind of presence is is so creepy because you always sense that he's the thing. He's one of the thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And the way that he plays it is is as that kind of quiet loner work. You think that, and then when you find out that he's really not, and that McReady actually just killed an innocent man, I mean, it's it's kind of tragic that that you know his personality kind of led to that. So uh, okay, so that's the that's the cast, and uh, now I feel like we need to we need to talk a little bit about the uh, the unspoken character, uh, the thing. It was really interesting. Um, the um um why am i blanking on his name robotin was a young kid and he saw some of john carpenter's early films and totally fell in love with them and and he called somehow he got in touch with john carpenter and wanted said look i i i know you're making this movie but i would do anything to to help out if you need a role i'll do anything and and he ended up as like somebody in in halloween uh, just someone in the background or whatever it is. And he kind of, you know, his, his uh, enthusiasm kind of latched on um, he, to, uh, or John Carpenter latched onto that enthusiasm. And, and he saw this guy who had kind of had that same sort of passion. And Rob Oteen, uh committed himself so wholeheartedly to the thing when it came to, you know, John Carpenter offered him the opportunity to do the creature effects in this. And, and I think John Carpenter said, do you have any idea how you're going to do this? And his answer was, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, so, you know, he'll figure it out. Good luck. He basically, I mean, I think he literally moved into the studio 
uh, he was living at Universal Studios for however long. I mean, I know it was over a year that he actually was living on the lot, just working seven days a week as day as he could to get these creature effects right. I mean, this he was only 21 or 22 at the time. He was a very young man just beginning his work in in creature effects and and he learned so much and i think he ended up doing so much uh, just unique stuff in this film and his goal as he was doing this was really to kind of create these things that that weren't so definable and i can't remember whose idea it was but the concept of the thing was all these different things that you see it kind of transforming into as it's as it's metamorphosing from one being to another were all things that it had absorbed its entire lifespan across the universe. So you're seeing these strange spider creatures or or weird little dinosaur dog creatures or whatever they are. And, you know, John Carpenter wanted to make sure that you never felt that it was just a man in a rubber suit. And so that's why you see these amazing things like when when Norris's head falls off and it, it grows, it sprouts these legs and antenna and starts crawling right. along the floor. I, I, I mean, I think that I think the effects were so good at such a level that were so horrifyingly bizarre. I, I think that was one of the big things that audiences at the time, 1982, really had a hard time dealing with. I mean, if you look at all the reviews, the reviews are all like, oh, they, they, you know, it's, they took it to all the worst levels. It's, it's, it's horrifying. I think Roger Ebert called it the, a great barf bag movie. You know, all these people talk about how it's it's just it's horrifying and, and just just wretched and and awful. And they had a really hard time grasping the I, I hesitate, hesitate to say the beauty, but of, of this of this gore and 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 just the excitement and and uh, novelty of doing something that really was so different than just a man in a suit. There, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think there's an enormous amount of just raw cleverness in the in the thing, uh, and and it's funny trying to come up with a different name for it. You know, and I and I I am I am not aware of any of the discussion of kind of what the name, uh, you know, what the name, how the name of the thing ends up getting, uh, getting picked. Um, you know, rather than the the xenomorph or the you know whatever, mm, you right? Know, there is no there is no real discussion of that. Um, well, I think it was just purely from the previous film that is not really based on, but that they kind of pulled it from, right? Well, and and the book, um, because all of this was based on on the book. Uh, yeah, right. John who, W. Who Campbell's goes there? Book, who goes there? The, uh, um, although have you read it? I, I don't. I've never read the book. I don't know if he refers to it as the thing in that book. But the uh, Howard Hawks Christian Nyby film uh, from 1951 was called The Thing from Another World. And they had adapted the book into that film, which wasn't a very faithful adaptation. And and John Carpenter really wanted to make a more faithful adaptation to the film because he felt it was more interesting. And so he, he took The Thing from the Hawks Nyby film. And it actually, so much so that the title of how the film begins when the thing kind of burns onto the screen that's literally the exact same way the wording or the letters are written in the thing from another world's opening title mm. 
that's interesting. And to answer your question, in fact, the the book, uh, the the book who goes there uh, does actually refer to the thing heavily. I mean, through the whole the whole book, it is re- referred to as the thing. Uh, the thing go. launched itself at Conant and the power. The thing mewed and hated and dodged. The thing on the snow did not move as a gleaming teeth ripped it open. You, you know, I mean, it was it's all the thing references, and so I, you know, um, I, I think that makes for a for the um there is no there's something about not going through the extra mile of um uh of actually coming up with a um with a name for a thing mm-hmm. uh, that makes it all the more sort of nauseating like it's so it's such a disgusting thing that we we can't even we can't even come up with rational words to define it yeah. and and because it keeps changing because every time we see it it's something new uh it's not a man in a suit it's a man with no body and spider legs in his head um <laughs> uh, it's uh, it it becomes um something i think i think that much more terrifying because even though you've seen it you never know what you're going to see again yeah. And it's that's totally another reason why I love the film so much, because it's such a mysterious creature. Yes. Yes. I, it was done really well. And, you know, to, to your point about uh, Rob Boutin, uh, you know, here's a guy who went on from the thing and ended up doing some some uh, pretty good movies, uh, yeah. in, including, uh, you know, some of our favorites, Seven and Fight Club. Uh, but, um, you know, he ended up going on from there to Twilight Zone. Uh, Legend. Which uh, I believe earned him uh, an award of some sort. He he's an amazing visual effects artist amazing who has artist. kind of disappeared. He hasn't done anything th- since two thousand two, and I I don't know why. I'd love to. I I don't know if he started up a you know a, a makeup school or something. I I don't know, but he hasn't done anything since uh since 2002 and i'm just very curious but i mean this is a man who did explorers legend witches of eastwick inner space robocop total recall robocop 2 uh, robocop 3 i mean it's so many different things it's just amazing what this man brought to special effects and and real physical effects and fascinatingly enough he was the tallest player in the cantina band in star wars episode 4 a new hope that just makes him all the more awesome. Am I right? All the more <laughs> awesome. Okay, I want can we? Can we teen to be my friend. Can we? He's on your list. <laughs> can we? Uh, can we talk about the music a little bit? You made some. I don't know if that was supposed to be like a douchey <laughs> "I hate you, Pete" comment today when we were emailing. I said I thought it was interesting that you're watching the thing. The movie comes up, and it you get John Carpenter, or mm. I mean Kurt Russell, right? Top mm-hmm. billing, Kurt Russell, and then Ennio Morricone. Second billing for this movie. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I'm not. It's... I'm not saying that to diss his music either. If you're going to come back and say he's he's really awesome, I'm not saying that. Why Why is he second billing? I I don't know. I I, I honestly I think it's because of the names in the film that at the time carried weight as far as like um, credits and, and who gets what billing and everything. I mean, John Carpenter, his name was actually in the title. It's listed as John Carpenter's The Thing when the movie starts. And so his name is right there. Kurt Russell obviously was the star at this point in of the film. And the other 11 guys, whilst in various levels of 
of uh, success and notoriety and fame. I don't know if any of them were the sort of name that carried a film, so I don't know how much their agents um, were able to uh, pull in order to get them, um, you know, a top billing sort of credit. Um, and Neil Morricone, I mean, this is a guy who's been writing film scores. Uh, I mean, he's uh, he literally has written several hundred film scores. He has so many film scores under his belt. Um, in Italy, over here in the States, just all around the world, he's been writing scores for, for decades now, since I don't know, 40s or 50s, something like that. And I, I think the reason that he got such high billing is because John Carpenter, notoriously, is a, is a director who also composes his own music. Typically, it's, it's kind of a simple, sim- just very simplistic sort of music, but the score for Halloween is one of the most memorable horror themes out there, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, however, they do tend to be a little simplistic and repetitive. And as much as the theme for Halloween is great, if you watch the film, that's pretty much the only thing you hear when the music plays. It's the same theme, just the kind of different variations of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was a thing, to, because this was Carpenter's first studio film, and they wanted to try to get somebody else in who had some more cred as far as the score. Or if it was something or an opportunity to 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 grab somebody to give him credit because there was a credit that he didn't get on another film. I you know, I don't know. There's such politics in all this, but I, I think it had to do because his name was of all the people involved in the film, one of the other ones who actually carried some credibility. That's, That's my best guess. Well, I you know, I'll buy it, but it makes me sad for guys like Wilford Brimley who uh, didn't uh, who I think you know. I mean, if we're talking about billing, like the Twelve Angry Men, those those dudes pulled a lot of weight, and it seems so weirdly out of context to see uh, Morricone uh, get the second uh, second billing in the in this horror flick. Yeah, because the music. I mean, it was good. It was it, it wasn't second billing good to me in this film. Well, no, I mean it's it's very kind of standard Morricone kind of horror score. I was listening to it earlier, and it definitely has some great stuff going on in it. But um, it's not the good, the bad, and the ugly or, or something like that. Uh, and it works really well. I, that's why I don't know what sort of contractual thing maybe they had uh, involved. I, I wish that I knew more about that. If anyone knows, please let us know. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's almost unfortunate because I think his best work was absolutely yet to come. Uh, you, go, you, you see him as a, as a, as a conductor, as a, a composer, yeah, you know, improving even through the '80s with, uh, you know, the Mission and the Untouchables and Cinema Paradiso, and um, you know, he's he's fantastic, uh, mm-hmm. and and got better and less repetitive. He's listed on IMDb with 512 <laughs> titles to his name. Oh my goodness! Wow, that's a there that's a, a little over. Does not stop. <laughs> Born in 1928. Yeah, yeah. Nice work if you can get it. Okay, uh, so there's the music. Uh, it it uh, budget. It it made a little bit more than it cost. Yeah, it, I mean this. It was. Um, I saw the budget somewhere. I, I want to say the budget came in. There it is. Fifteen million to produce. And I mean, it did okay. It debuted number eight at the box office, which wasn't great. Unfortunately, it came out um, right after. E.T., which opened two weeks beforehand, another alien film and a much more cuddly alien film. 
Um, and it also opened the same day as Blade Runner. So <laughs> it was up against some some top notch films. That's a this tough. Was, it's this tough was June to compete. 1982. That's tough competition. It really is. It really is. So it opened, you know, it opened weekend uh, gross of 3.1 million. It went on. I, I, I've seen a couple numbers. One is around 13.7 million. Another is about 19.6 million. So, you know, it made its money back barely. And, uh, but I think because of the, I guess you would call it a cult following that it's developed since then on on cable and on video and dvd and all those different things i think it's probably done a little better now and you know it's um i mean it's obviously obviously developed enough of a cult following to spin off a video game a comic book series a um uh, a, a, a there was talk of a sequel that sci-fi channel was going to do um, universal studios even did a little theme park for one of the halloween um nights they had um, and then, of course, the prequel that came out last year, which um, I that is actually in my queue. It's uh, it's going to be delivered in the next couple of weeks, and I'm very excited to watch it now that I've sort of revisited the thing. Have you seen the 2011 take on it? I have. What was and your I'm, thought? It, well, my first thought is, why aren't they all Norwegian? <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't understand that. I'm like, I thought the camp was a camp of Norwegians. Why are they only two of them Norwegian? <laughs> That's really funny. It's the, there were only two that were Norwegian, and are we to assume that those are the two who get in the helicopter of and go course, try and shoot the dog? So you know that the two Norwegians <laughs> make it alive, make it out alive. Oh no! Yeah, so it's a little talk about phoning it in. Uh, it's. I mean, I liked the concept. I liked what they were trying to do with it. I don't think it worked all the time. And to be honest, the biggest problem I had with it was that Rob Bottin's effects weren't in it. It was all computer effects, and it was obvious. And it just there's something about seeing the the physical effects happening right before your eyes, exploding right before your eyes, that just makes it feel so much um, more real. And when you see it just doing the CG, the typical CG stuff, it it uh, it was kind of disappointing for me. Is there uh, is there a sense of letdown when you? I, I mean, it sounds like they really took the, uh, particularly when compared to Alien Prometheus, um, they they took the more literalist approach to the prequel, um, where we're going to show you the events that lead up directly to the movie that you know and love from 1982. Right. It's, uh, it's exactly that prequel for the thing was I think what some people were expecting for Prometheus to be. It it sounds to me, having not seen it, that that ends up being part of why it was it would have been a letdown because you know exactly how it's going to end and whatever flashy effects you throw at it, you know that it ends up as a dog. Right. Exactly. It would have been the exact same thing if a if Prometheus was leading us up exactly to the moment where that ship crashes that um you know the 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 being is sitting in the chair the chest burster pops out and all that stuff i mean it it would have we would have seen it coming it takes away some of the suspense of of where things are going you know interestingly enough having this conversation i i picked up prometheus when it came out last week and i'm i haven't watched it yet but i'm excited to do so i've watched the opening credits which are still stunning yeah uh i mean beautiful but having this conversation makes me really want to watch it again because I, I think I appreciate the direction that they took in that movie more uh, Yeah. Uh, in, in that, this context. Definitely. 
what else do you want to talk about with this movie? Just a couple, a couple things. Um, one, this is loosely in what John Carpenter considers. Um, it's the first part of what he calls his apocalypse trilogy. It's this film, The Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness. All films which are completely unrelated, but uh, as he, as it says here, are, are each features a potentially apocalyptic scenario. Should the thing ever reach civilization, it'd only be a matter of time before it consumes humanity and takes over the earth. Um, which I, I I love that he has that little trilogy, and it just makes me feel like, gosh, we're gonna have to do those other two in a I series know. these days. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we can have our little uh, uh, John Carpenter Apocalypse trilogy. Oh, I love so, it. Yep, right there next to the Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy. <laughs> Another well, unofficial trilogy. Uh, we have we have an, an unofficial trilogy in the films of Bill Lancaster. You know what I mean? No. Bill Lancaster, right, wrote this movie. Burt Lancaster's son. Right, and he wrote two other films. Right. Oh, that's right. And I think they fit so well together. He, <laughs> he In 1977, he wrote The Bad News Bears. In 1978, he wrote The Bad News Bears Go to Japan, and in 1982, his big follow-up was The Thing. <laughs> right? That's right. That's right. That's definitely a trilogy <laughs> that ties together beautifully. It ties together beautifully, and it is sort of the, the study of, of the deterioration of one man's mind. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, uh, this film is the fantastic poster drew struzan is a uh poster a movie poster artist who's been designing posters forever and his poster he has created some of the most iconic posters i think we've talked about some because he did all of the um indiana jones posters he did yeah. the star wars posters he's done just iconic poster after iconic poster and seeing drew struzan's work just always i i can see a poster and instantly know oh that's the struzan and the poster that he did for The Thing is another perfect example of just capturing this essence so well. You see this dark body with kind of a light emanating from its head. You know, the, you don't know what this being is. It just works. It's such an effective poster. It is a. It is really a, an effective poster. And, and uh, um, it's one that, you know, when you look at, I, and I haven't even checked the IMPA awards. Uh, I'm going there right now because it, this poster is the one that um that that absolutely uh you know defines this movie and it's the first one i know that comes up on the thing and uh, i didn't even look at the the alternate uh art uh i think there's some yeah there's a japanese version of it which is all anime kind of manga themed and <laughs> yeah uh, and another one that looks a little bit more of an hr geiger kind of a, a take on it um trying to figure out where that one even comes from the thing poster number three but really the one that sticks is the uh, is the the epic uh struzan piece yeah that's it's the one that's the one that i always that i always think of so yeah. it, it's not the the one that's on the uh dvd cover but um it's it is the poster that for me is the it, it represents this film yeah yeah so all right, so we're moving on to uh, week two in our, in our Halloween um, megathon. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. personally very excited about next week. I, I uh, uh, we're taking on my first choice, uh, which is uh, the 
2002 British zombie horror film, Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later, yep. uh, which is <laughs> one of my very favorites. <laughs> very favorites. I, I am a connoisseur of the zombie uh, genre, subgenre. Mm -hmm. And so I get very excited about this movie. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. Uh, where where else would you like people to find you? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Soda Creek Film, um, more likely on Facebook and uh, over at the uh, wonderful rashpixel.tv slash MWL. And uh, yeah, Excellent. send out some good words. We appreciate the good words. If you find us in uh, iTunes, I was checking the stats and, and there's still a there's just everybody who's listening to the show. With the exception of one person two weeks ago who downloaded this show on the Zune. Uh, everybody's getting it through iTunes, really. Uh, and I say everybody. A, a, a very large portion of our listenership is getting this show through iTunes. And so iTunes listeners, thank you. If you went next time you were in iTunes, you're just stopping by iTunes, you're wandering through the halls of iTunes. If you could stop by the show and uh, and just leave us a little uh, review and a rating, that would be very helpful. It helps other people discover the show and uh, join us in our conversation about movies our, uh, and uh, movies we like. So uh, definitely do that for us. It really helps us out. And we, we deeply appreciate your participation. Um, you can find me at Pete Wright on the Twitter or uh, obviously at RashPixel.tv. You can find the other shows that we do. I, I did a uh, I did a guest shot on another podcast today. Oh, nice! Yeah, I I it was the it was a French podcast, and blessed be the host not making me try to do anything in French. It, but it, <laughs> for anybody who is an who is an Evernote nerd, be looking for the uh, Elephant Channel out of Paris. Uh, it's an English language Evernote podcast, and we talk all about how awesome Evernote is. And, and uh, fantastic! Yeah. Totally unrelated to movies, but I got to pimp uh, Pierre Jamal, who is uh, uh, who does this show, and and um, it was a, we had a great conversation. So uh, check it out if you're into uh, into that sort of stuff. I think that's all I have. Wonderful. I'm going to say bye now. You know the <laughs> the tagline on this this third the thing poster is "Man is the warmest place to hide." <laughs> <laughs> You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. We covered a lot of great movies that started as books or plays in season two, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. The Born Identity, Supremacy, Ultimatum, and Legacy. Jaws, Big Fish, The Thing, Bullet, Drive. The Maltese Falcon, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Moneyball. Ah, Moneyball. The Prestige, The Town, The Killing. So many great movies from so many great sources. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We listened when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. 
I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 